Let's, uh, let's turn together in our Bibles to the New Testament book of Galatians chapter 5. Uh, I'd like to start reading from verse 16 um, all the way through verse 26. As, as most of you are well aware, this, this whole passage in Galatians 5 really centers around what the Apostle Paul calls the fruit of the Spirit, the nine character qualities that all Christians are to possess and display. And if you're just joining us, uh, like I just hinted at just a few moments ago, we've been talking a lot about the fruit of the Spirit for the last eight weeks in this series entitled Fruitfulness, which we are actually wrapping up today. Uh, and we began this series um, nine weeks ago by considering how all human beings were created by God to enjoy Him and to reflect His fruitful character on the earth, to reflect him in his love and his joy and his peace and so on is literally the, the, the reason, you know, what we were designed to do, if you will. And to have embraced this design purpose would have resulted in human flourishing. But beginning with Adam and Eve, if you're familiar with the biblical story uh, and continuing down with each one of us, we, we've all sinned, we've all rebelled against God, each in our own various ways, and we have each rejected our role as God's fruitful image bearers. We've traded flourishing for, for famine and, and sickness and anxiety and death. We looked at this in the first week of fruitfulness of this series. And by, uh, by the sheer grace and mercy of God, though, all, all is not completely lost. We considered in the first week that it's because, you know, through the redemptive work of Jesus Christ and the enabling power of God the Holy Spirit, we can not only be forgiven of our rebellion, but we can once again embrace the life of fruitfulness for which we were made. And when we do, when we embrace the, the fruitful qualities of God that we are to reflect on the earth, when we do this, we get a taste of the human flourishing for which we were designed. The flourishing that will be restored to us in full at Jesus' second coming. Um, and so what was happening in first century Galatia uh, which is a province of, of, of Rome, um, it, the Christians in first century Galatia were not tasting the flourishing for which they had been designed. The Christians in Galatia were not displaying the fruitful qualities that Christians are to display in love and joy and peace. And we can trace it back to and link it back to the fact that they, well, they had their theology in a knot, uh, they didn't know what to believe. False teachers had come into the church and told them that, well, salvation is, yes, it's by Jesus' death and resurrection, but you also have to act like a Christian before you can become one. And they started falling into this legalistic trap of trying to earn with good works a salvation that God only ever designed to be given by grace. And it was this messed up, kind of tangled up theology that led to all sorts of malpractice. There was, we've read it, 
time and time again, there was backbiting amongst them. There was gossip and slander. The Christian church in Galatia looked like anything but the Christian church. They weren't flourishing. They weren't walking in fruitfulness. They weren't walking by the power of God the Holy Spirit. And so in verse 16 of chapter 5 of Galatians, Paul writes to them and he says this. Follow along with me if you will. Chapter 5 verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But, verse 18... But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery. That word sorcery is where we get our common word for pharmaceutical or pharmacy. It really, the the context of that word is like the concocting of drugs. Sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, which there is a sexual connotation, but orgies were really eating parties, lavish, extravagant parties where people were just gorging themselves with food. And Paul then finishes, and other works of the flesh like these, I warn you, as I warned you before, that people who do such things, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Here's another but, 22, but... The fruit of the Spirit, in contrast to everything that we just read, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. And let us not come, become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you say a word of prayer with me? Uh, God, we do thank you for your Bible. Um, we wholeheartedly believe that it is your inspired, infallible, inerrant word, uh, breathed out by God the Holy Spirit through human authors the pens of men over the course of 15, 1600 years in multiple locations and three different languages. We're so grateful to have this collection of sacred writings that truly are spirit-breathed. We ask now that you would give us a reverence for what we've read, that we would dive into it, because God, your word is profitable to us, not only for salvation, but also for training us in righteousness and godliness. And we want that. And so we ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I grew up um, about an hour and a half southwest of here. If you know me, uh, you know that I was in a town called Newark in Licking County. There's a family uh, in my hometown with four daughters, Grace, Hope, Mercy, Jessica. And Jessica 
was um, she was in my circle of friends. And to be fair, I put that out of order. Jess was the, was the oldest, but I just still think it's so funny. In fact, our whole, our whole friend group would always tease her that she should change her name to self-control uh, <laughs> to kind of play into the whole fruit of the spirit, even though, you know, hope and mercy. Anyway, you, you follow what I'm talking about. That is my embarrassingly terrible segue into what we're going to be talking about this morning, self-control. We're not talking about Jessica. Poor Jessica, wherever she's at. Um, it, it, it's, uh, it, it's the ninth and final um, Christian character quality that Paul lists in Galatians 5 that we're going to be looking at this morning. Um, self-control is not more or less important than any of the other qualities. Uh, without self-control, we cannot, in fact, love and serve and reflect God like we ought, and we will not taste the freedom and joy and true life God desires for us. Self-control is the real deal. And self-control has also been an issue for humanity since Day one, Adam and Eve had everything in the paradise garden of Eden. God gave them every crystal clear stream to drink from. He gave them every luscious tree to eat of except one. (laughs) There was one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They were allowed everything else. They had dominion over everything else. Was it not God's divine prerogative to say there's one thing that you're not allowed to touch or to eat from because I am God and you are not? It's a built-in reminder. It's a built-in mercy. You are not the Alpha Omega. You cannot do everything. There's one thing that you cannot do. But they could not handle the restriction. They would not be restrained, Adam and Eve. Not by God, not even by themselves. Now fast forward to the cultural moment in which we find ourselves today. And things are really no different. I mean phrases like YOLO, you only live once, so go ahead and just dive in. Or phrases like I'm going to do me, you do you. You do you. Uh, These phrases are frequently used to encourage ourselves and others to release our inhibitions and follow our impulses. The idea of restraint is so unpopular today. It's actually being seen as a denial of not only our rights, but our identity. During a recent TED Talk in Germany, a medical student named Miram Henne argued that pedophilia should no longer be considered a disorder, but a preference. Our idea of restraint and self-control is one that assaults freedom. And of course, our definition of freedom is doing whatever we want, whenever we want, however we want, with whomever we want. And if you think that, that we really don't have these definitions, just look around us. I mean, we spend more money, we eat at more restaurants, we watch more shows, we own more stuff than any other time in history. 
And yet, according to one 2018 national survey, America's quality of life meter is dropping so rapidly that our average life expectancy is now beginning to drop. We've hit this threshold. We're starting to deteriorate. It turns out that eating whatever we want and drinking however much and having sex with whomever we want isn't aiding, but in fact it is abating our overall well-being. And this is where the grace and the gift of self-control comes in. And we're going to talk this morning in looking and considering self-control. If you're a note taker, I have three things we're going to look at. Number one, we're going to look at what it means to practice self-control. That sounds really basic because it is. We're going to look at what it means. Number two, we're going to look at why we should practice self-control. And number three, we're going to look at how we can, how we actually can practice self-control. Control. Those are the three points that will be under, and, and we're going to start with point number one right now. What it means to practice self-control. Let me hit you with some, with some definitions. Uh, Pastor John MacArthur, he writes this, that self-control is the restraining of passions and appetites. Philip Ryken, he adds this, that self-control is temperance and moderation especially in sensual matters such as eating, drinking, and sexual relations. Uh, Pastor Tim Keller defines self-control as the ability to pursue the important over the urgent rather than to always be impulsive or uncontrolled. And Jerry Bridges, author of The Fruitful Life, which Pastor Ronnie and I have been referencing throughout this series, Jerry Bridges plainly and simply defines self-control as this. I love this definition. The governing of one's desires. The governing of one's desires. I love that definition because I think it allows us to see that there's more to self-control than merely restraining ourselves from improper thoughts, feelings, and actions. I mean, of course, self-control includes biting our tongues from gossip or turning off the movie when it gets inappropriate. Of course, self-control includes these things, but self-control also consists of pushing ourselves toward proper thoughts, feelings, and actions. It's embracing what is true and good and right. Paul writes in Colossians chapter 3 that there are things under the category of self-control that Christians must restrain themselves from. Yes, sexual immorality, impurity, evil desire, idolatry are just four that he lists in Colossians 3. Followers of Jesus must steer clear from these things. But Paul also lists in that same passage, Colossians chapter 3, he lists things that Christians under the category of self-control must push themselves to. In the spirit of Christ-likeness to push themselves toward kindness, humility, meekness, patience, Forgiveness, And so my point is simple. We need to understand self-control consists 
just as much in thinking and feeling and doing the right things as it does in avoiding thinking, feeling, and doing the wrong things. Does that make sense? Jesus models this for us in Matthew chapter 4. If you're familiar with the earlier part of parts of Matthew, you know, Jesus has just been baptized by John the Baptist and immediately the Holy Spirit brings him out into the wilderness for 40 days of solitude and fasting and prayer. And while he is out there three times, Satan approaches him, the devil approaches him, attempting to derail Jesus from his obedient course. Three times in the wilderness, Satan tempts Jesus with the immediate gratification of food. He says, look at these stones. I know you're hungry, Jesus. You've been fasting for 40 days. What will it hurt? Turn these stones into bread and eat. He tempts Jesus with fame and fortune, saying, I'll give you these things if you but follow me. P.S., just a quick aside. Satan is always promising things that he has no ability to give. He has no power he has none whatsoever. We need to remember in the moments of our temptation that the gratification and the fulfillment and the satisfaction that is promised to us, oh, just indulge in pornography. Oh, just go and have that affair. Oh, go and speak ill of this brother or sister. It will feel good. It will give you a sense of justice. We need to remember that the feeling of gratitude or gratification that we are desiring when we say it never comes. You know this. It never comes. Satan's in the business of promising things he has no ability to give. So three times he does this to Jesus. But three times in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus restrains himself from wrong thinking, feeling, and doing while at the same time pushing himself toward right feeling and thinking and doing according to the word of God. If I could paraphrase the conversation he has with the devil, Jesus says, no, Satan, I'm not going to turn these stones into bread. I am hungry. I have been fasting 40 days. There's part one of Jesus' self-control, restraint. But then he continues with part two. In fact, Satan, while, what I'm going to do instead is I'm going to, instead of, instead of you know, transforming these stones into bread, I'm going to fix my thoughts and feelings and actions on the promises of God. See, church, Jesus knows what all too often I forget in my moments of temptation. Jesus knows that true life is not found in a loaf of bread. Jesus knows, as you and I are to know, that true life is not found at the bottom of a bottle of wine. That true life is not found in the next sexual encounter or in a bigger house or in the latest technology or a different job, you name it, whatever it is, true life will never be found there. I mean, just, I say this often, I, I use 
Hollywood and our, famous, our favorite movie stars and, and, and musicians and athletes as an example. Look, I mean, they have like the world at their fingertips and yet so many are miserable. True life is not found in these things. It was never designed to be. True life, Jesus knows all too well, is found in the word of God, in the incarnate word for us, Jesus Christ himself, and in his revelatory word, which is scripture. I like to think, are you familiar with the story of, of, um, of Joseph and Potiphar's wife in Genesis 39? I, li- I like to think that, you know, after Joseph flees Potiphar's wife, she's, she's trying to have him you know, invite him into this adultery, this, this affair. I like to think that when Joseph runs away, which he does, he flees the scene. I love to think that he runs right home and he just buries himself in the precious promises of God's word. Because, oh, the enticement of the immediate gratification of the flesh. I mean, I don't know Joseph. He lived a long time ago. I don't know how hard it was for him. I can imagine it was probably quite difficult to flee the scene. And oh my gosh, it's not just about saying no to sin. It's about saying yes to something far greater. I love to think that he just ran right to God's word and reminded himself of the precious promise. A promise like this, you know, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind can even imagine what God has in store for those who love him. Talk about a promise that we can wrap our knuckles around when we are faced with the temptation to lose our control and to follow our impulses into sin. It's one thing to flee from sinful things that our flesh wants, but it's another thing to remind ourselves why. There's power in understanding and remembering why. Number two, why we should practice self-control. And church, let's cut to the chase because the true life we're looking for, the true life that every single one of us is trying to stuff into that void can only be found in the God who made us, the giver of life and breath and everything, Acts 17. The one who makes known to us the path of life, who fills us with joy in his presence, whose right hand bestows pleasures forevermore, Psalm 16. We practice self-control for more than just saying no, I just said it, but saying yes to him who is far greater. And so let's bring this down at eye level. Brother, when you are alone in your house and the computer is practically calling your name to come and indulge in images and videos that are dishonoring to people created in God's image and dishonoring to God himself. When the computer is practically calling your name, brother, run to Christ. There's, no other, there's really no other way to say how we ought to respond and why we should practice. Run to Christ. Do you not think that he will reward you? Uh, Hebrews 
believe it's chapter 11, verse 6, that, that our act of faith, especially in those moments, is that we would run to God in prayer because not only does it demonstrate we believe that he's existing, but that he rewards those who seek him. Do we not think in our moment of about to lose self-control that Jesus will not reward us for running to him for the help he promises to give? Brother or sister, when you've already, here's a, here's a taboo topic and I'm just gonna go for it. Listen, when we've already eaten a healthy portion of food, and yet our body just does not want to stop. In those moments when we are in danger of flirting with gluttony, run to Christ. Do we not think that he will fulfill us? When we've had a glass or two of wine and the rest of the bottle is whispering our name from the cabinet, do we not think that God will satisfy us when we run to him. Why should we practice self-control? Because self-control is the wonderful rubric we get to follow into true and genuine and lasting freedom. It's the place of genuine, true, and fulfilled life in Christ. Americans, we need to hear this. When we are walking through Ikea, looking at a bunch of stuff we don't even need, when we're walking into Best Buy, I can't even go in there anymore. When we're browsing on Amazon and all the shiny stuff is playing tricks with our head, so many of us who are so quickly given to materialism and then sub subsequent workaholism to earn our materialism, all of this. Why are we not just running to Christ and asking him to appease our appetites? Do we not believe that he'll satisfy us? He will satisfy. After all, he is our creator who knitted us together. He knows what is best for us and we can trust him to give us everything we need at the precise moment of our need. The governing of our desires, the embracing of self-control is so much more than merely saying no to sin. It is an opportunity for us to say yes to he who is infinitely greater It is to our joy. It is to our fullness. It is for our good that we look and breathe in the limitations that God gives us in his word that we trust. There is a reason why he is so adamantly telling us to, to spare ourselves from sexual immorality and drunkenness and gossip and overindulgence of every form. The Israelites were always doubting this in the Old Testament. They were looking at the law and they were saying, what is it? Is God just against our fun? No, think about it. God was asking them not to do things like don't eat blood. It was, I mean, it was, it was I mean, I'm, I'm not even really being that humorous, but it was for their good. 
These limitations that he placed on humanity, on the people of Israel, was for their good, and and they really never understood it. As a husband of a wonderful wife, it is for my good to remember to make a covenant with my eyes like Job, to make God the promise in the morning and to ask his help, please don't let my eyes wander. Give me eyes only for Christ and only for my wife. It is for my happiness and my joy. Church, if we could only understand this, self-control would be, I believe, wholeheartedly embraced. In all areas of life, it is for our good. He created us. He knows what we need. We can trust him. And so in scripture, in the mornings when you're diving in, oh man, ask him to point out all of these precious promises. Ask him to reveal to you the rules, the wonderful rules that he's asking you to abide, he's inviting you to abide by for your joy in that day and then walk in them. Trust him. And not to mention... What a, uh, what a wonderful, wonderful opportunity for mission when the world around us sees that, yeah, I mean, I can, I can go to Spoon and have a pint of beer with my friends and it doesn't get out of control. God-given moderation is a wonderful thing. And what a witness, what a witness. You could paste in any other example you wanted to. Isn't it weird that we have the opportunity to be missional just in literally being spirit-filled to the point of self-control? Because no one else is (laughs) self-controlled. On my best day, I I, I can't do it in my own strength, which is what we're gonna talk about now. But I'll just end that point number two by saying this. Look, we'll never learn to practice self-control so long as we view it as an inhibitor of joy and not a maximizer. Let's prayerfully view it as a maximizer of joy. So how? Uh, My brother and great friend Craig, you know, a couple weeks ago, uh, I was here, Andrew Dempsey was preaching, and I just got to be here for the preaching of the word, and he just pulled me aside and he said, hey man, I'm loving the series. Craig has nothing but encouraging things to tell me, usually on the weekly basis, and he says, man, just uh, close up this series and tell us again how. How are we to practice self-control? How are we to walk by the Spirit? And so let's do that. Paul tells us in verse 16 of our text this morning, he says, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Doesn't that seem overly simplified? (laughs) Walk by the Spirit, believers. That's all you need to do. Walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. In other words, walk by the Spirit and self-control will follow. Walk by the Spirit and you will not entertain. Look at verse 19. You won't entertain sexual immorality. Walk by the Spirit. You won't be given to impurity or sensuality. Not if you walk by the Spirit. You won't entertain idolatry or, or, or drug abuse or enmity or strife or jealousy or fits of anger. Not if you walk by the Spirit. There's a promise that we can call on, Lord. You're, you're promising me. Rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. Think of how much those things ravage the church. Christians who are supposed to look like Jesus are often more 
filled with rivalry and envy and gossip and dissension than the outside world. But not if we walk by the Spirit. Drunkenness, gluttonous parties, these are no match for Spirit-empowered self-control. When we walk by the Spirit, we then get to be spectators as we watch His fruit supernaturally emerge in our lives. And I'm talking about all of it. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. All nine qualities which belong fully to Jesus also belong to his followers. Now, we don't produce them. We looked at that in week one. We do not produce fruit If you leave here thinking, by my effort, I am going to become more self-controlled, you will look like a Pharisee. It's not self-help. It's not self-effort. It's walk by the Spirit, and He does this in us. So how do we do that? First of all, I will tell you, it is only possible for Christians. If you are here and you have really, truly never placed your trust in the saving work of Jesus' death and resurrection and submitted your life to him, if that is not you, then you will not walk by the Spirit. You have no hope of doing so because the Spirit lives inside the hearts of Jesus' followers, his people. And so for those in the room who have entrusted their life now and their life to come to Christ. The hardest part has already been accomplished. God the Holy Spirit has already opened your heart to the truth of Jesus and his invisible but powerful Holy Spirit has been united with yours. And so hear me out. We'll do just two or three minutes of a little bit of theology here. If you are a follower of Jesus who believes in your heart that Jesus' perfect life lived in your place and his substitutionary death, that he died to save you from your sin and transgression and the miraculous resurrection that then proved his God status. If you believe those things, you are a signed, sealed, delivered believer and God the Holy Spirit actually lives inside of you, infused with your spirit. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. God's Holy Spirit lives in you and me. He has taken up residence inside of us, which means there is a sense in which everything you and I do is walking by the Spirit, by the enabling power of the Spirit. I don't know about you, but there are just too many days in my life that go by when I fail to remember that God the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, lives in me. In me. And He wants to empower me to live the fruitful and fulfilled life for which He created me. If you can relate to this, this Holy Spirit amnesia, when we wake up in the morning and we forget that God Himself actually lives inside of us, If you're like me, here are some seriously practical ways to grow out of this. Here's four. Number one, tomorrow morning, should the Lord give us another day, 
Let your first major interaction be with God. I say major. Uh, my wife and I are often up early at the same time. We interact. And then the two of us, if we're up at the same time and if I don't have an appointment, we interact together with the Lord. Letting our first major interaction be with him in his word because that is where our minds are renewed. As our minds are being renewed, as we're reading words that in our, to our, I mean, this, it's an outdated book is what we like to believe in our flesh. But the moment that we give ourselves to these truths and we say, okay, I'm gonna believe that you're real and that you wanna speak to me in this word right now, we invite that, oh man, have you ever done that? Have you not tasted and seen what comes from that? My goodness gracious, let that be your first interaction of the day. And while reading, if you're on a reading plan, you know, don't do this. Like, oh, like don't, don't do that. Do, do a reading plan. Get, get into the word. Read it uh, a little bit each day in, in order, if you will. Pray for opportunities while you're doing while you're doing that, pray for opportunities to obey him and to be fruitful. And the Lord, even while you're interacting with him in the morning, he may even give you verses to write down for that day that watch will be super practical and timely for later on in the day. Just watch him do that. It is astounding. Number two, after we let, this is how we walk by the spirit. This is how we walk by the spirit. We let our first interaction of every day be with the one who made us and who wants us to bear fruit. We're in his word. We're asking him to teach us and to make us to look like Christ. Then number two, as we go about our day, we are constantly reminding ourselves of that morning interaction. We are reminding ourselves of the gospel that we know to be true. As each unique situation arises, when I show up to the office and my boss is all ready to come down on me and all of a sudden my identity, I am starting to question everything. It's in that moment because my mind's been renewed in the morning that I can, into my heart, I can go, okay, my identity is not in insurance or whatever it is you do. My, this is not my identity. Jesus, you have come to earth. You have saved me from my sin. You have called me your own. I am a son or I am a daughter of God most high. If something should happen to this job, if I'm fired, I can recall the gospel that if you sent your son to die for me on the cross, how much more will you give me all things? I can trust you. Right then, in that moment, walking by the spirit with whatever it is that we are faced with trusting and obeying. Later on during lunch, if you're tempted to go back to pornography or if you're drinking on the job or giving yourself to gossip, know that it is an opportunity that you're being graced with to experience the tangible outworking of God when you trust and obey. Number three, don't neglect to stay plugged in with fellow believers. This is how we walk by the Spirit. Don't neglect to stay plugged in with fellow believers. And when we do stay plugged in, ask them to help you evaluate your fruitfulness regularly. 
Ask a close, trusted brother, do you see love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control? Do you see it at work in my life? Give that brother or that sister a scary amount of permission to call you out when they don't see it. That's number three. And number four, celebrate any growth you experience. Celebrate every moment, every time by God's Holy Spirit and by his power, you overcome the temptation to do something you ought not. Every time you walk away and you walk into the truth of God, every time that happens, celebrate. Bake yourself a cookie or something. Celebrate. Because we cultivate what we celebrate and then wait patiently for more. Wait patiently for more growth. This is how we are to walk by the Spirit. If I were to summarize all four of those things, it would come down to trusting and obeying. And I will close with with this. Um, Maybe some of us are here and we are looking back on our week, our month, and we are seeing just an absolute mess of a lack of self-control. Uh, because that's what we talked about today and it's, it's just, it's, it's coming up. Um, I would encourage you in this way. Uh, there's a tremendous promise of scripture in 2 Timothy chapter two, I believe it's verse 13, that even in our faithlessness, God remains faithful to his people. And so today, in spite and in face of all of the lack of self-control that you've experienced this week and that I have as well, we get to, because of Jesus, we get to go back before the Father right now and we get to ask not only for his forgiveness but his help that we would walk in spirit-empowered self-control in, 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 in ways that we did not this week that, that Jesus wants to give us that. And so I want you to be encouraged and not discouraged um, that he is faithful to us. We're gonna sing it here in just a second. So would you pray with me and and I'll I'll end my rambling and we can close and and we'll sing. Father, I just, uh, I thank you for, for many things. One of which is that you created us for fruitfulness. Be fruitful and multiply was the first command issued to humanity. Um, We want to look like you. We want to love and be joyful and peaceful and patient. Lord, because this is the essence of human flourishing. When all of us embrace the fruitfulness for which we were made, goodness, it's the essence of harmony and unity. And we want these things, Lord. And so we're sorry. We ask for your forgiveness in in all of the ways that we have traded fruitfulness um, for fleshliness. We ask for forgiveness that our sin has traded flourishing for famine. All of the death and disease and sickness and pain that's all around us is because of our doing, Lord. We're grieved by it. Uh, Lord, as we look back at our our week and we see lack of self-control, for those of us in this room who know you, we genuinely desire to be self-controlled and ask that you would help us in that, that you'd forgive us.
God, if there are any here who are wondering um, where they stand with you, um, I pray that you would give them um, confidence if they are a believer. I pray that, Lord, if they have not yet trusted you, I pray that they would do so, um, believing that Jesus in your perfect life, death, and resurrection is everything needed uh, to accomplish our salvation forever. Um, And we thank you for it. And so God, open our hearts to these things um, and be honored as we now sing of your tremendous faithfulness. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.